proclaim aloud today, know a true tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives. Thank you that we have living testimony in our lives of those things. And just some words of scripture, he will never leave you or forsake you. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Lord Jesus, thank you for these promises. Thank you that you are a God who's with us. If you are for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son gave his son for us. How much more will he not give us in this life and in the life to come everything? And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Thank you, Lord. Oh, we worship you. And help us now as we come to the reading of your word. Teach us afresh. Speak that we might hear. Help us to act on what we hear, that you might be glorified. Amen. Amen. Ruth is going to bring our reading to us. The reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 10. And it's verses 1 to 10. It's on page 1076 of the Church Bible, John chapter 10. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger in fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, can I encourage you, if you've got your Bibles, to keep them open to that page. And if you weren't reading along, please do find a Bible near you. We will be digging into this text. And that was page 1076. Well, if you're uh, new to us or you haven't been for a while, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John in the evening services, looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus. This is Jesus really telling us who he is, who he believes he is, so that we might know who he is, and then decide, well, do we believe what he says about himself? And we've looked so far at some I am statements that are actually quite easy to understand and apply. I am the bread of life. That's fairly easy to understand because we have an everyday experience of bread. We eat it, we're satisfied, and Jesus is speaking about the fact that he is the true satisfaction for our spiritual hunger. And then the second one, I am the light of the world. We have everyday experience of light and darkness and how awful it is if you have to walk in darkness. And that idea that Jesus brings illumination and clarity and light and revelation and purpose to life. He is the light of the world. It's not just for us, it's for the whole world. But now we come to an I am statement, I am the gate of the sheep, (laughs) that actually isn't as easy to understand. Not many of us have an everyday experience of sheep. Anyone have an everyday experience of sheep? Probably not. Not many of us are shepherds. Not many of us probably know shepherds, actually, in the modern age. And yet this is a very deep, profound saying of Jesus about who he is that if we spend some time digging into, we'll reap great benefits. But before we do that, I'm going to pray for us. Well, Lord, we thank you for the I Am statements. And help us with this third one, to understand it and to rightly live by it, knowing who you really are. Help us by the power of your Spirit to see you clearly. Amen. Well, to understand what he's trying to say here, what Jesus is trying to say, I do think we need to spend a bit of time looking at the context what's gone on just before. And in John chapter 9, if you turn back a page... It says, Jesus heals a man born blind. And this was on a Sabbath day, a day when he shouldn't have been doing anything. And he heals a man who'd been blind from birth. And this causes controversy and upset, especially in the local synagogue, where this blind man who now sees was dragged into it and asked about what had happened. And the blind man says, it was Jesus. Though at that point he doesn't know his name he just says, it's this man who went around healing and he healed me and the Pharisees putting two and two together think oh no he's talking about this Messiah figure that people have been trying to follow and proclaiming we reject this guy because he's a sinner surely he does this stuff on the Sabbath a day when you're not supposed to do this kind of stuff surely nothing good can be of him and they reject Jesus and they reject this blind man you now can see But then Jesus comes into the situation at the end of the chapter and he says, well, what have they done? And the blind man says, well, they've rejected me out. And he says, well, I want to tell you something. That those people that thought they could see are actually blind. And you who are blind can now see because you've seen me as the Messiah. Clearly, you've worshipped me as who I really am. 
And straight away, in the hearing of this blind man now healed and in the hearing of the Pharisees, he launches into this extended image about sheep and shepherd. So I want you to hold that, what's just been going on in the chapter, in the background, because it's important a bit later on to understand what he's saying here. And he uses an image that, for them, would have been really well known. Because every major household in those days would have kept sheep, three or four or five, to actually provide wool for the family, to provide meat further down the line, unfortunately. Um, And they would have had a number of families around them who also kept sheep. And in villages of the time, shepherds would exist who would look after three or four families, or maybe even more, worth of sheep. And that would be their flock. And that would be their sole job to look after those sheep. And at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus speaks about the idea of them coming in at the beginning of the day and calling the sheep, their flock, out amidst all the houses, amidst all the other sheep from all the other households into one flock to come and follow the shepherd. To follow the shepherd out to the grazing land. And this would be an adventure for them for about three or four days out to do some grazing to get fed. And so they hear his voice, they recognize it. They're not going to be misled by other voices and they follow the shepherd out to grazing land. And then Jesus speaks about at the end of the day where they're out of the grazing land and they're led into a stone enclosure for rest. And these stone enclosures would have been three-sided, quite high, about three or four foot high, they would have been built to protect the sheep and to guard them in the pasture lands as night fell. And on the last side, there would have been a small opening for the sheep to go in and out of. And sometimes there would be a physical gate on that opening, but sometimes there wouldn't, because these things weren't well maintained. They were just used by local shepherds as and when needed. And what the shepherd would sometimes do would be actually to put all the sheep in and then himself lie across the gap and go to sleep. And he became a human gate. And then if they wanted access to the pasture lands in the morning, they would have to go through him as the gate. And as they go in at night, on the second night, they go in through him as the gate. They go in and out, Jesus says, through the gate to find good pasture. And also the shepherd sleeping there protects the flock from the thieves and the robbers who try to jump the wall and take off sheep and to devour them for themselves. And the shepherd being there as the living gate would be their protection, their source of comfort in the midst of that. Now, understanding all of that helps us to understand why it's so important when Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep. He's talking about the fact that just as a shepherd mediates access to good pasture in and out, day and night, to life in a flourishing flock, Jesus is the one that does exactly the same for us, his flock, his people, and his people recognize him as such. That blind man recognized him as such. But the Pharisees, who weren't his people, they didn't know him. But he is the gate for the sheep. That if they go in and out through him, they will be saved and find good pasture and then he tops it off and says I have come that they might have life and life to the full verse 10 
the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and life to the full. He's explaining to these hardened Pharisees and to the blind man that's been healed exactly what he's about. That he's about life, giving life. If he is at the center of life, as the gate of life, then the life he gives is beyond anything we can imagine. This is life and life to the full. And that's why the blind man's reacted like he has, worshipping Jesus. And that's why the Pharisees have been hardened, because they just can't accept it, because he is the gate of life. For them then and for us today. And applying it to us, what Jesus is speaking about here is what's often been called Christocentricity. Technical term, which simply means just having Christ at the centre in all that we say and do, the way that we live life. Not under a sense of rule and burden, that was the Pharisees, but a sense of belonging and walking with Christ, including him in everything that we do. That sense of just as planets orbit the sun, so our lives in one sense orbit him. Or like sand timers, all the sand running through that narrow constriction and out through to the other side. Everything that we do running through Christ through to the other side. That's what he means when he says, I am the gate for us. And he says that if you can believe this, if you can have it in your life, well, I'm going to do great things. I'm going to give you life, and not just any kind of life, life to the full. Now, I was wrestling with how to explain what this Christocentricity looks like, actually, how we could possibly live it. Because it's all very well to say, Jesus needs to be at the centre of your life and to sing it, Jesus be the centre. We all know this stuff. But what does it actually look like? And I came across this really moving account uh, recently, which helps me personally. And it's of a man who asked a vicar at the, um, after decades really of following Christ, how should I pray? I just really struggle in prayer. And the vicar said to him, well, let me tell you something that's helped lots of other people. But as you go to bed, that chair by the side of your bed, I want you to imagine that Jesus is right there in that chair. And then just talk to him. Just talk to him. And so the man went away and did exactly that. Many years later, the vicar lost touch with this man. This man died, surrounded by family at home. And the vicar heard on the grapevine what had happened and went and uh, discovered the family mourning, but actually a bit surprised. Because they said, as he was dying on his deathbed, the last thing that he did was he took his head and he came off the bed and leant it on the chair next to his bed and then died. It's a true story, actually. And the vicar thought, oh, he's understood. He's understood what it means to live with Christ, to have him at the center. It's not about the words necessarily. It's not about what we might say out loud. It's actually just about living with him as if he was really there, because he is really there by our side, just there. Beginning of life, during life, and at the end of life. And Jesus says here, if you can live like that, that I would be the gate, I'd be at the centre of all that you do. Well, what I promise is life to you, life to the full. And the Greek here, actually, for the word uh, to the full is a very special word. 
It's a word called perisous, and it's a word that was used to ex exclaim something extreme or extravagant. This isn't just a, a simple bit of life. This is extreme, abundant life that's been translated, or exceeding life. You might remember the, um, Mr. Kipling's cakes and their little slogan, exceedingly good cakes. Well, this is what Jesus is talking about, exceedingly good life, if you can have him at the center of it, if you can live like that. And what I want to do mainly for tonight is to dig into two reasons why that is true. Why is it that if we choose to live like that, Jesus gives us life like that? And the first one is this, that Jesus' life is infectious. It's really the most amazing life the world has ever seen. No one's lived a fuller life, a more vibrant life than Jesus, a more perfect life. And actually, if his life is at the center of your life, well, you know what's going to happen. It's going to spread outwards. It's going to infect the entire of your life and set it on fire. There's a very well-known story in Acts chapter 4 where the Apostle Peter and the Apostle James are shoved in front of the Sanhedrin for having healed a blind beggar at the beautiful gate in Jerusalem. Again, on the Sabbath day, actually. They seem to get into trouble repeatedly on this. And they start questioning them, saying, who gave you permission to do this? And by what authority? And this is after Christ has risen and has ascended. And so they're just there by themselves. And they start answering and start preaching back to the Sanhedrin, the ruling elite, the religious creme de la creme. And it says this, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. That was what made the difference, actually. Even they could see it. That because these men had been with Jesus, Jesus was at that place of the gate in their lives. They were different. He made the difference. And it might be that in your life you know that you have people that you like hanging around with because they make you feel good. They bring out what's best in you. And actually, you try to spend as much time as possible with them. I've got some friends who, I'm, who are staying with me actually over the next few days and they're like that. And they, I find myself changing around them. They're bringing out the best in me. It's really good. But conversely, you'll know that there are people in life that actually bring out the worst in you. <laughs> you try to avoid them like the plague. And you definitely don't invite them to come and stay with you. <laughs> and the same is going on here, really, in this chapter. You see, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, were people that just brought you down in life. The rules and the legalism and the guilt trips and the feeling of inferiority, the feeling of a heavy burden, a negative source that just brought you down, way down, really. But on the other hand, there is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus brings out what's best in people. People want to be around him. People follow him. People are delighted to give up their lives and their livelihoods to trek around a random countryside for three years after him because he brings out the best in people. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that as we behold his glory, as we behold the glory of Jesus our Lord, he turns us into the same image, transformed from one degree of glory to the next. 
brings out the best in us, changes us, and makes us more vibrant in life. And this is why, if anything, I want Jesus at the center of my life. He brings out the best in me. He really does. I know what it's like without him. And for some, this is a bit of of surprise, especially for you if you've been in church for years and you've been used to all kinds of religion and rote, some of which can be helpful, some of which can be really tough, and some of which can just lead to guilty feelings. To hear about a Jesus that wants to bring life to you can be something a bit shocking. There's a well-known story of someone called... uh, Lord Helsham, who was the longest-serving Lord Chancellor in the 20th century. And he, for a long time, was an atheist because he knew religion from a distance. He'd seen religious practices, he'd gone to the right schools that had religious services on a daily basis, and he was just put off. And he thought of Jesus as just another person that's just going to make him feel bad. But he became a Christian very simply through reading through the New Testament and discovering that Jesus was nothing like he had thought. And here are his words. He says this. He was shocked to find a laughing, joking Jesus, this happy and glorious man whose mere presence filled his companions with delight. That people would have been absolutely entranced by the company of one so irresistibly attractive as a man. So attractive, indeed, that people followed him for the sheer fun of it. I think that's true. People follow Jesus for the sheer fun of it. The people here, you know, you've been following Jesus, and it's been fun. It's been challenging, it's been adventure, it's been difficult, there's been unanswered questions, but following him brings delight and fun. He brings life to your life because of who he is. A few years ago, in the uh, former BBC documentary series, Everyman, they had an episode that was entitled How to Get to Heaven in Montana. You know, it's going to be a good episode when they have a title like that. And they investigated the life of a Christian Hutterite community, which is similar to the strict Amish, full of rules and legalisms. But for some reason, there had been rebellion in the ranks, and the younger generation were daring to step out of the confines of that community. They started to go into town. They started to go to movies. They started to even drink. It was shocking. They started to actually live life for the very first time with joy around them and started to attract people towards themselves. And at one point in the episode, the leader of this kind of rebellious young group was interviewed. He was actually the the head guy's son. And he was asked, well, what does Jesus Christ mean to you? And he said this, Jesus, at this point his eyes fill with tears, he is beautiful. He is my everything. He is my magnificent obsession. Because he had encountered the true and living Christ, because he knew exactly who he was at the centre of his life. He'd been set free. His life had been brought brand new life. Free to be who he was meant to be. Free to glorify Christ in the way that he walked. Free to honour him any way he saw fit. But staying close to him and loving him and walking with him and being all about him, his magnificent obsession. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. 
far from the religion of the Pharisees, far from the religion of all who would promote law and legalism. A life set free, living close to him. That's what he's talking about. Life to the full. Well, that's the first reason, because his life is infectious. The second, this is more from the text this time, is that Jesus brings abundant and exceedingly good life to us because he protects us from what robs us of life. See, in the passage, Jesus contrasts what he will do with what others will do. He talks about, at the beginning of the passage, the stranger who will lead the sheep astray. He talks about the thieves and the robbers who try to hop the wall and steal the sheep. And then he ultimately talks about a single person, the thief. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. They have come that they might have life and life to the full. And Jesus is speaking here in contrast to him, other sources that you might be tempted to follow, that might promise life, but actually, in the end, only lead to death. He's talking about sources of evil out in the world that have great attractive power, that can seem like they're going to make all the difference that are going to bring you real life, but actually it does the opposite, destroys life, disintegrates it, deteriorates it, it brings it to death. And to this, this evil that Jesus talks about, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. But not only does Jesus give life because of his life, being transferred to us. He actually then protects us and save us from, saves us from what would rob us of that life he's given to us. He guards us. He delivers us. He's our saviour. In Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, he says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. That's where we get the saying from, being on the safe and narrow. Staying with Jesus, he keeps us safe from that which would destroy our lives. There's been a, a really good picture and illustration of this in the news recently. I don't know if you caught it. It's a bit of a strange one, but it really intrigued me that over the last couple of months, there have been various... Um, sperm whale carcasses washing up on the shores of Britain and the Netherlands and France and Germany actually and people have been really confused what has been going on how have all these whales suddenly died en masse in fact they, they've collected 30 of them now 30 whales and they've done a bit of investigating to work out what's been going on and the current theory they're not entirely sure the, thing, the current theory is that this, they were all one whale pod that were swimming together. And they were tempted by some shallow water squid that were right there in front of them. And they sought out and they tried to hunt the shallow water squid. And because of that, they'd been led out of their natural feeding grounds. And because they'd been led out of their natural feeding grounds, they started to encounter currents that they weren't used to. And they got disorientated and confused and slowly but surely, they all drifted in different directions into shallower and shallower water until eventually they became beached in different places and died. That which promised life 
actually led to death for them. And that's what Jesus is talking about. There's stuff out there that promises life, but actually leads to death. And yet he can save you from it. He can protect you from it. He can keep you safe from it. Of course, again, in the context of the passage, he's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That if you stay close to me, I'm going to deliver you of all that rubbish, that legalism, that stuff that just brings death to you. That stuff that promises life. And once upon a time might have given you life. But now, because it's being used in the wrong way, just leads to death, just leads to imprisonment. And for us today, actually, there are sources that do exactly the same thing. For some of you, you know what it's been like to live in religion. To have been brought up in places where it's all about the rules. Do this and do that. Some of you have been living with guilt because of that. I want to say to you, if that's you today, that Jesus isn't about that. He wants to save you from religion. He wants to save you from that sense of death because of it. But there are other things as well. There are obvious big things out there in the world that could do the same. There's, there's promises of substances that could bring life but actually bring death. There are promises of people that could bring life but actually bring death. But there are also more subtle things. One of the perennial battles, of course, is that temptation if I have the right things and do the right things, I'll have a vibrant and active life. I just get the right career. I just have the right family and the, the lovely house. And if I just arrange it just so, and if I get the right friends, that will bring me life. And of course, it may for a while, but actually ultimately, it leads to a sense of death. I can never fulfill it. I can never measure up. I can never quite do it. There are other subtle things. There are subtle things in our sexualized culture that are out there. That temptation, if you're married, of promiscuity and infidelity. Just a bit, of a, just a bit on the side, a bit of fun. Something that will bring a bit of life into a dead or a stalling marriage. And yet that which promises life brings death. There's a recent Times article in the Saturday Times where <laughs> on the very front page a lead article was uh, highlighted and the title was this Why Happy Couples Cheat It's Only an Affair and actually I read the article and it was just about how to explain how adultery was okay actually it can be recovered from and not to be taken seriously and actually here are the steps to actually recover from it. And so go ahead, it's okay. Don't feel guilty about it. A promise of life, of vibrancy. Oh, a bit of fun with other people. But of course, leads to death. We know that. We know that. There's lots out there. There's, there's a whole longer list. You probably know those of your, some of your own that you battle with. That all promise life but bring death. And Jesus says, I'm not like any of those things. When I promise life, I mean it. And not only that, I'm going to save you from their power. See, the reason we pray the Lord, in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, is because actually we need delivering from evil. We prayed it today. 
And Jesus hears those prayers. And if he is there as the gate, there at the center, he's there with his power, the greater power, to deliver us from it. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter says this, we are being guarded by his power until our coming salvation. The Apostle Jude, who this church is uh, named after, says this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy, to him be the honor and the glory now and forever. He's able to do it. He's able to save you from this stuff. Stuff that you know about, that you wrestle with. Stuff that are personal evils. He's able to save you from it. The thief and the robber and the stranger. He's able to save you from it. Ultimately, as I said, there is the thief who is behind all of this. And it's not too much to read into this text to suggest that the thief is probably the evil one. The one who is behind all evil. And the one who actually, ultimately, is our enemy that we need saving from. You see, when you became a Christian, you became God's best friend. You became Satan's worst enemy. You gained an enemy for life. He hates you with a passion because he hates God. And he can't get at God, but he can get at you. You ask a martial arts instructor, how can you wound him greatly? Well, you might not be able to do it to him, but you can to his children. And that's exactly what it's like for us. And when Jesus says that I can save you from the thief, he's talking about I can save you from the power of the evil one. That even that, even that power, I can vanquish and conquer. I was, uh, this was especially brought home to me a few years ago when I, before I was ordained, I was leading something called a pastorate, which was a collection of various misfits, really, about 20 of us <laughs> um, from all walks of life. There was a consultant surgeon in the room. There was the unemployed. There was the mentally ill. There was a barrister in the room. Then there was me in the room. I don't know how I fit into that. It was one of the most happy times of my life leading these, this crazy bunch of people. But in the midst of this bunch of people, there was one lady especially who I thought was the most prophetic woman I've ever met. She heard from the Lord in a way that I'd never, met be never known before. And she used to encourage people and speak into their lives and every single thing she'd ever said was true. I kid you not. Because I knew it personally, a word that actually changed my life. And one night, <laughs> she, she explained where this had come from where this had come from. It was, a, it was a sad tale. She'd grown up in a Christian household and uh, had been going to church and doing the stuff and kind of been nodding assent and thinking, yeah, this is okay. But in her teenagers, in her later teenagers, she'd start to, to hang out with some guys who were into some of the darker stuff to do with spirituality and the occult and even, she found out later, Satan worship. And slowly but surely, she started to be drawn in to the stuff that they were doing. It just seemed a bit more exciting, a bit more fun. And as she got drawn further and further in, she started developing these abilities. She could hear voices. She could see things. She thought, this is amazing. How amazing is this? 
And yet, slowly but surely, her life started to disintegrate around her. Relationships were falling to the ground. Living circumstances were getting worse and worse. And she ultimately realized, she made the link, oh, okay, this isn't bringing me life at all. And she found herself completely and utterly trapped. And she was in despair about this all. And she went on like this for a number of weeks and months, not knowing what to do. Until one night, actually, she was doing some of this stuff that she'd learned how to do. She was stopped dead in her track. She saw a blinding light in the corner. As she approached, she saw a vision of Jesus. And Jesus simply said to her, Come to me and I will save you. Come to me and I'll save you. She might have forgotten about him, but he hadn't forgotten about her. And that's all she had to do. <laughs> she, she, she went running, actually. She went running. And there and then, straight away, it all went. It all went. And she was left. It was redeemed. She was left with this ability to hear in the spiritual better than most. But that which, God, that which the enemy meant for evil and for destruction, actually God redeemed and turned around and actually he started to use for good, building up his people. But Jesus had a passion for her. and says, no, I'm not letting go. I'm saving you out of this rubbish. You're one of my flock. You're going nowhere. And rescued her. It was one of the profoundest things I'd ever heard. But this is what he can do. It's what he promises. He promises to, us, promises to protect us from this stuff. Even when we get into it, he can deliver us from it. This is how he gives us life. This is how he gives us life. I've got to end. The early church father, Irenaeus, said this, The glory of God is man fully alive. That when we live the greatest possible life, fully alive in Jesus, we bring God glory because of who we are. And that's what God intends for you and me. It's not just about us, it's about him. He wants to be glorified through us. He wants us to have life and life to the full because it means that we'll reflect him and his life that he can give to others. And I'm going to end with a bit of a silly illustration of this, but one that keeps coming to mind. Uh, the 2010 film, Night and Day, which I'm hoping not many of you have seen, is a Tom Cruise film uh, one of, it seems like hundreds of quite awful films that he has made, actually. Uh, he's made a few good ones, like Top Gun. Um, but apart from that, some of them have been hideous. None of you agree about Top Gun, do you? You're laughing at that. It's a good film. It's a good film. Yes, you agree? Okay. But in this film, it is actually awful. And he's, he's paired with someone called Cameron Diaz, who is, I think, a well-known actress of some kind. And... Um, <laughs> He's a CIA agent who uh, is on the run and bumps into Diaz's character. And Cameron Diaz is a, a civilian, I think she's a school teacher or something like that, and gets embroiled with this whole thing. And the CIA start to think that she's involved and start hunting her as well as Tom Cruise's character. And there's a moment where she starts to freak out and starts to really think, what is going on? I'm just going to leave town and try to get, that, get out of here. And Tom Cruise comes to her and says something really simple. He says, with me up there, without me 
down there, with me, without me. Make your choice. With me, you've got me. Without me, you're by yourself. With me, you've got someone who understands what's going on. Without me, you haven't got that. With me, you've got someone who's been trained, who can do things you can't imagine. Without me, you're left by yourself. Make your choice. With me or without me. And in a sense, that's what Jesus says here. With me, at the center, the gate of life, I give you life to the full. I protect you. I deliver you. Without me, you've got none of that. With me, I want to give you life because it glorifies God my Father. I want to give you life because I've got so much life to give. Without me, you're left by yourself. You've got nothing. Just try it by yourself. With me, without me. It's your choice as well. With me or without me. How are you, how are you going to respond to that? With me. This week, I'm going to live with him. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to live with him. Or actually, I'm going to do it without him. That tough person I've got to meet. With me. Without me. With Jesus, without him. It is actually that simple. That simple. Jesus wants to give us life. He is the gate of life. We've got to have him there at the center. That he might give life and life to the full. Amen. I invite you to stand and we're going to sing together.